This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. In the last episode for 2022, The Wigs firstly look at a recent civil law decision of the High Court in the case of Stubbings versus Jams 2, PTY Limited 2022, HCA 6. The case concerned a man signed up by so-called pure asset-based lenders to a mortgage agreement he would inevitably default on because of not having sufficient income, leading to the, again, inevitable loss of his mortgaged asset. The High Court considered whether the equitable doctrine of unconscionability should operate to set aside the transaction. Unconscionability is a rule of law deriving from equity where a court can relieve a person from the otherwise binding legal effect of an arrangement where the conduct was so involved and so unjust and one-sided that they were contrary to good conscience and should not be enforced. The Whigs discuss the judgment and their interpretation of the history of equity as a branch of Australian law. Secondly, the Whigs undertake a year in review, discussing and updating the various cases and topics covered during the year of episodes. And last up, of course, is fun things. Enjoy the show. See you next year. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the final Whigs of 2020. The two. I was going to say 2023 is not 2023 at all. It's great to be here for one last hurrah before we kick off a brand new year. Uh, it's great to be surrounded by my favourite colleagues once more, Stephen Lawrence. Hey mate, good to be here. Good to have you here. Have you been well? Mate, I have been well. Yeah, a little bit, sort of quite a busy end to the year, but I'm off to Young in the morning, then to Bathurst on... Wednesday or Thursday? What's okay. the day after tomorrow? Tomorrow, day after tomorrow will be Thursday. Thursday. Yeah, I'm in Bathurst, then home in Dubbo Thursday night. And watch those roads. Yeah, full of potholes. It's absolutely crazy. Right, right, right. Felicity Graham and Bubba Graham. Great to be with you. Great to have you here. Have you both been well? We have both been splendid. Excellent, excellent. Good to good. That's great. Lovely to have you here in person. And uh, remotely, having that mute button on standby because of his runny nose... Emmanuel Kukasharian. Jim, hi. Hi. <laughs> you can ask say, me to cut that bit, aren't you? <laughs> no, but I've always hated people who are troubled by the weather, but I'm now troubled by the weather. The wind has is, is disturbed me. And who anyway, can blame you? Yeah, it's a shit time of year in terms of yeah. the wind. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it was due four months ago, wasn't it? And now we're getting yeah. it now. All that solar yeah. energy whipping around. So we begin tonight with a discussion that is led by... Mr. Remote himself, Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Take it away, sir. Right. Well, so we're talking about a case called Stubbings and Jams 2, J-A-M-S 2, Proprietary Limited, 2022 High Court of Australia 6, uh, as yet unreported. It was from March of this year. Um, Stubbings and Jams is a case about unconscionable conduct um, and came out of an appeal from the Supreme Court of Victoria to the Court of Appeal of that state. And um, it's really, it, it's worth having an understanding of the facts of this case before we sort of go into the law of it. Uh, it's a fascinating scenario, really. Um, and for those of us who primarily practice in crime or, or adjacent practices, it's always so interesting to see uh the facts that underlie sort of financial transactions that seemingly go on all the time uh, and find themselves before the courts all the time. So, anyway, the appellant, uh, Mr Stubbings, owned two houses in a place called Narwarren, both of which were mortgaged to the Commonwealth Bank, and he was paying about 260 or 280 a week on those mortgages. He didn't live in those houses, he instead rented another house uh, at Bonio, uh, where he worked on repairing broats for the owner of the property from where, uh, from whom he was renting. He had a bit of a falling out with the owner of the place. He stopped work and needed to move out. Rather than go to live at one of the Narwaran properties that he owned and he was paying his mortgage on, he sought to purchase another property on the Mornington Peninsula. Uh so at this stage, he's unemployed, he has no regular income, he'd not filed tax returns in several years and was in arrears on the payments 
for the two Noah Warren properties and he had a home loan application to ANZ rejected uh, because of financial records or for a lack of financial records. Though he, he wasn't – you couldn't say, Manny, could you, that he was poor because the decision says that he had about $500,000 in equity in those two properties, right? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't poor in the sense that he had these he had these properties. Mm. He hadn't been paying them off, which becomes um, relevant, but, doesn't it? In the sense that he wasn't in some hopeless financial position. If he'd gotten good advice, there was certainly a way forward for him. I think that's right. Mm. I think that's right. And yeah, and as you well, as we get through it, we'll see how how really um, the situation that he was put in was one that led, would almost inevitably lead to him becoming poor. Absolutely. Um, or, and, that, and that's really the problem. Um, so now he's introduced to somebody called Mr. Zirkus, Zirkus, uh, and he describes himself as a consultant in the business of introducing borrowers to, a, to an organisation called AJ Lawyers, uh, AJ Lawyers in turn provide a service to clients, basically facilitating loans between those clients and people who want to borrow money. Okay. Uh, so that that would be outside the purview, wouldn't it? Of a solicitor? Oh well, yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah, I don't know. I think solicitors are allowed to do that kind of thing on the side, aren't they? Barristers aren't. I but, don't know. I thought that's I where know. the unconscionability came into play. But let's let's read on. Apologies for the interruption. Oh no 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 no. It it, it, it gets so anyway. So they meet up with this guy, um, and he says he wants to buy a little house to live in. Uh, that is the appellant says he wants to buy a little house to live in. To which Mister Zercher said, "There'd be there wouldn't be a problem going bigger and getting something with land." Uh, on the strength of that suggestion, a quote, the appellant found a five-acre property with two houses on it available for 900 grand. Uh, and in any event, they, he was told he could borrow uh, enough to cover the two existing mortgages on the Narwaran properties and uh, some money to borrow to, to buy a new place Um as well as having money, borrowing money to pay the first three months' interest on the new loan, right? And then the idea was he could then sell the Narwaran properties, reducing the loan to four hundred grand, which he could then refinance with the bank. So this kind of odd scheme was pitched to him, um, and anyway, without going too deep into the details of the finances underlying it all. The scheme was something that obviously would put him in a position where he had to pay a lot of interest uh, and would find himself... So the first mortgage was for a sum of $1.59 million, sorry, $1.059 million, at an interest rate of 10% per annum and a default rate of 17% per annum. The second mortgage was for a sum of $133,000 at an interest rate of 18% per annum and a default rate of 25% per annum. And this is the mortgage that was given, the mortgages that were given to him, uh, a person that they knew had no income. So the mortgages were actually given to a company. And so they're they're private mortgages. Sorry to cut you off. Is that right? They're not financial institution mortgages. They're private mortgages. That's right. Okay. And they're given – in effect, he was made he, – he, that is the appellant, was required to give a guarantee over the mortgages. And the reason – and someone will correct me if I'm getting this wrong because it starts to get a bit complicated. But what it looks like to me is that in order to avoid the restrictions that apply – to mortgages given to individuals. Uh, There's a code that applies and sort of certain tests and so on that needs to happen. In order to avoid those, uh, what happened was they gave the mortgage to a company and they made him the guarantor on the mortgage using his properties in effect to secure the obligations as a guarantor. And that was a company that... that was a company that was his company, yeah, but 
effectively conducted no business. He didn't trade. He didn't was trade. the sole shareholder and yeah. director. Hmm. So, yeah. And he was described in the evidence as like not a sophisticated person and quite vulnerable. So he wasn't some sort of corporate type person. Yeah, he's pretty He's pretty much talked into this scheme that really it's difficult to say any sensible person would have got into. Um, I think they, so, one of the findings by the primary judge was that the very circumstance that he was disposed to enter into the transaction was evidence of his vulnerability because mm. it was so obviously risky and dangerous and, and adverse to his interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, Anyway, Zirkus presents the appellant with two letters uh, saying that um, basically documentation that was bet to be independent financial advice to be signed by an accountant and a certificate of independent legal advice to be signed by a lawyer and he says to him, go and get these things signed. And uh, refers and him to a particular lawyer and a particular accountant to do it. So thereby negating yep. that they're not independent. Essentially, yeah. that was one of the findings that they weren't truly independent. Yeah, and then there's some, there was some dispute as to whether or not the advice was even given. I can't in at least one of the cases. Um, so in any event, he gets them signed. They come back, and this whole and of course, you know, he's unable to service this mortgage, uh, and they take steps to recover. He pays the first two payments or something, right? Or the first two months he pays? Well, the first month was already prepaid by part of the that's transaction. Right. An advance on and the then, mortgage. That's yeah. right. And then the second one, yeah, he paid out of money that was basically part of the loan. Yeah. And then he didn't have enough for the third. Yeah. And the finding was basically, Maddie, wasn't it, that it was inevitable that he would default? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... The, the 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 thing that was at issue was whether or not the offering of whether or not what occurred was unconscionable and there was two ways that that was at issue the first is basically at equity did they engage in unconscionable conduct in equity uh, and the second possible way of that in effect um, is a statutory uh, statutory provision in the ASIC Act 2001, Section 12CB, which effectively says that a person must not, um, in relation to financial services, engage in unconscionable conduct, engage in conduct that is, in all circumstances, unconscionable. So it's subtly different from the equitable position of unconscionable conduct, but uh, both potentially apply to a situation like this. So the judge at first instance was willing, quite willing, to find that this was unconscionable conduct, at least at equity, and did so. Um, And there was an appeal to the Court of Appeal which overturned the fine. And one of the interesting things about this is that there is arguably, although, I I mean, it blows my mind away that this is... this happens but there is arguably a place for lending to people who have no income um you might think you might argue reasonably that it's unconscionable to lend to someone who has no income uh with a view to acquiring the underlying asset when they default Mm. right and that was essentially the main part of the attack in the court of appeal wasn't it that the primary judge's approach had been that asset-based lending in and of itself was unconscionable. Yeah. So this idea of asset-based lending is, is in short, you have an asset, say, that's worth a million dollars, you want to borrow $200,000 on that. Um, why shouldn't I lend you $200? In the worst-case scenario, I'm going to get all of my money back plus the interest because I'll just force you to sell your asset. Um, now, you couldn't do that to individuals with mortgages and so on because of certain things that apply in codes, but if you're effectively giving your private mortgage to a company, then you you can do that. Um, what I think 
So the, the argument, as you say, Felicity, was centred in the um, Victorian Court of Appeal on that, on whether or not that was a legit thing to do. But by the time we get up to the High Court, um, it's clearly accepted by everyone that you can do asset-based asset lending. There is a legitimate role for it. But that's not really the point in this case. The point in this case is that they took someone um, who really was really at risk and they should have known was at risk uh, by the fact that he had no income, by the fact that he entered into this kind of arrangement uh, and did everything they possibly could in a way to avoid becoming or further aware of the risks that he faced. Mm. And that in itself is unconscionable. The state of mind aspect of the case is quite interesting, right, because you've got Mr Stubbings, he's having dealings with Mr Zorkus, who's this self-described consultant or the intermediary, and he essentially shields the law firm who's the respondent's agent from any direct dealings with him or the person or entity borrowing the money or as Mr Stubbings guaranteeing the loan. And then you have the law firm that acts for JAMS too. They, their state of mind is imputed to JAMS too because they're acting for... Um, them as the as the lawyer, and so there was this sort of issue about well, does the respondent through their lawyer really have a sufficient state of knowledge in order to engage the unconscionable conduct provisions in circumstances where the law firm had really no direct dealings with Mr. Stubbings? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right, and and um. It was, it was, as the primary judge found, there was basically a system of conduct in place that was there in effect to to get around what the rules that apply to unconscionable conduct are. And so, even if even if you found, um, even if you were to take even if you were to say that, look, the ultimate lenders did not know of the special disadvantage, um, it was the case that the fact that they had knowingly and deliberately shut their eyes to the circumstances, which included that, you know, the appellant was completely out of his depth, um, he didn't have... Uh, it didn't bring relevant documents with him and so on. Um, the, the lawyers, at least, must have been aware. He couldn't even do a, a 10% calculation on $130,000. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. Um, God, anyone so knows that's the, 50 grand. Yeah, that's right. AJ Lewis... <laughs> Um, the lawyers, at least for the lenders, were fixed with actual knowledge of his inability to service both the loans as guarantor. And so lending in those circumstances must have been unconscionable. So, I don't know. I, I, I like this judgment in the sense that I like that really it's the High Court and, and a judge at first instance <coughs> looking at a... Um, deal that's been done that's you know where someone's been really firm and tried to do everything by the book in a in a sense you know try to have all their eyes dotted and their t's crossed uh but actually the courts will know actually this is really an equitable this, this is like sort of classic equity. it's the conscience of the court asserting itself and, and the like certificates that. of independent advice were window dressing really yeah so, Jim, have you done equity in your law degree yet? I have, and I just want to talk about what... It might be good for you to explain explain what equity is, what the distinction is between equity and common law for the okay. law students. All right, let's do that. Let's, let's just go to a break first, and then we'll come back to... I just want to talk about the, the um, solu solution, for lack of a better word, in a situation where the court finds that there has been unconscionable conduct engaged. Does that mean that um, uh, is Mr... St 
uh, Stubbings is now sort of, you know, exonerated from further debt? Or how did the court decide that, Manny, in terms of... What happened practically when the loan what agreement is yeah, unenforceable? They found that there was unconscionable conduct engaged. What was what was the order of the court in order to rectify this man's situation? The primary judge concluded that the uh, loans were procured by unconscionable conduct, and the result of that was that he ordered the mortgages simply be discharged, and the loan agreement to be declared unenforceable. Well, that's great. So does that just mean he gets to keep the property? And he's got no mortgage on it? Because I thought with equity... No, that would be... You don't profit, right, from equity. And I'm sure you'll talk about this, Jim, when you talk about the distinction between equity and common law. But it's just to put you back in the position, right, that you would have been in but for it. So you shouldn't profit from it. Yeah, it would be an unjust enrichment, wouldn't it? (laughs) You nailed that. Isn't that right, correct? (laughs) But what if you've relied on the, uh, the loan agreement to your detriment? In other words, he's bought this other property. Mm. Which he can't use to service the other loan. What a mess. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I mean, there's a, there's a judgment um, which I jams to and others and stubbings number 4, 2019, VSC 482, which I think is the, is the, is the judgment about what actually, what orders would have come of this. Um, and... That judgment formulates a whole series of kind of odd orders that you'd have to look at the underlying detail of the cases. But um, the plaintiffs were required to deliver to the defendant. That is, so Jams was required to deliver to um, Stubbins uh, the mortgage. So basically an un- a discharge of the mortgage at the land's title office. So he got the mortgage discharged um, there was a declaration that the loan agreement was invalid. Uh, the defendants were to account to the plaintiffs for a sum of a hundred and something thousand dollars uh, to be a debt due. Mm. So for some reason there was a debt that was to go the other way, um, and there's a whole bunch of other orders. So in effect. The question was, what amount is to be required to pay by Mr Stubbings to achieve practical justice? Mm. Um, and Mr Stubbings be returned to a position where he has a property free of obligation of forced possession and forced sale, uh, in which he has equity of about 530000 as he had prior to these mm. unconscionable transactions. Mm. Okay, so, okay, the so restore him to the, the position that he was in to the tune of about mm. $530,000. But that's yeah. cash because the properties are gone. Mm. You know, his interest that he had, his equity that he had, it really just highlights the unconscionability, doesn't it? In the sense that it just shows how uh, how detrimental the outcome was for him, which shows how vulnerable he was. Uh, because so, he never would have agreed to it if he had decent advice. Right, and so unconscionability yeah. is, and the crux of what we're talking about here, is a an equitable principle only. Is that right? It's yeah, it's an equitable principle. Okay. Although there's a statutory kind of mm, as yeah, you mentioned, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, but I, mean, yeah. I think it's interesting to compare though this principle to the the other types of applications of principles of fairness. So if you think in a criminal context there's a, a fairness or unfairness question in relation to the admissibility of admissions against accused persons in criminal proceedings. Mm. And it's sort of interesting to think about some of the analogous factors. So you're looking at the power imbalance between the parties, between, say, in this context, the investigating police and a vulnerable or unsophisticated suspect or accused person. You're looking at things like the disadvantage that they're at in that context of the investigation so things like intellectual disability mental health anxiety issues language questions of um, drunkenness or intoxication lack of education illiteracy youth lack of assistance or advice where that's necessary and so in are the you context saying of policing also so aboriginality you- as 
a factor um, yeah, so going you're... to vulnerability. And it's interesting to kind of look at the list of things that are recognised as categories of yes. potential special disadvantage in the equity context. Yeah, yeah. So it's not equity, but the court will bend its empathy. Yeah, so the Evidence no, Act recognises through Section 90 a discretion um, that rests with the presiding judge or magistrate in relation to whether to admit into evidence in a criminal trial admissions that are being made by an accused. And it's, yeah, I think it's quite interesting to look at how these same types of factors are at play and I was thinking about it also in, in the context of the agent of the state um, scenario. Because in terms of not being protected from your own stupidity. Exactly. But at some, line, it, at some point it crosses a line where it's not just foolishness but exploitation of vulnerability, something exactly. that might be compared to unconscionability. Yeah. Like M and the Queen. Mm. Where there's some part of M and the Queen, isn't there, which was about about admissions made to undercover police officers where the person that made the admissions didn't know that they were being recorded mm. and didn't think that they were admissible, wrongly didn't think that they were admissible. Because and the, the courts talk about not protecting people from stupidity and foolishness or something like that and make the point that indeed that's why lots of people do make admissions and it's important to allow it to be admitted in those circumstances so the system can function. Mm. But at some point the interaction between the citizen and the state will have this quality of exploitation or vulnerability that mm. that means you would exclude it. And there's similar things in equity, right? Because presumably it's not there to protect people from simply poor decisions that you make to your detriment that someone else profits from. Yeah. It's about, well, special disadvantage is a key factor. Mm. Yeah, because on that- paper, like, who cares? You can lend f-ing money to someone, who cares, right? Or, or, or give them uh, some sort of financial arrangement that you might sell in a really well way and if they take that up then the notion is it's on them Mm. Mm. yeah i mean the concept in equity is that it's something that seriously affects the ability of the innocent party or the the vulnerable party to make a judgment as to his or her own best interests and i would have thought that arises in lots of contexts Mm. in criminal law mm-hmm. um i think there's a especially a lack before. of advice legal advice about actually what the right to silence means and how it could affect the person in terms of whether or not they're charged and if they are charged how it could affect them at trial because i think most um most suspects who are given the caution the standard caution you don't have to say or do anything anything you do say or do can be used against you in evidence at court. I, I think most people don't actually understand what that means. What were you saying, think, Manny? Sorry. I think there's a difference between excluding evidence and asking the court to do something for you. So what the equitable doctrine is doing, I think, is, is the court is saying, look, you've tricked somebody into doing something and now you're asking me to use my power as a judge, as a court, to get something out of that person because you tricked them. And I think that's subtly different to a police officer tricking somebody into making an admission and that admission being evidence that's then used against the person. Mm. Um, right, because the the court there is sort of one step removed. It's not the court that's that's the court will ultimately punish the the accused who's made the admission, but it's not punishing them for the fact of the admission. It's punishing them for the underlying con- conduct. Whereas in the equitable scenario, what we're talking about is you're being punished for the mistake that you've been induced into. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, Jim, are you going to explain to us what equity is? Ah, oh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> love putting you on the spot. I hate, like, I've forgotten it already. <laughs> what do you want from me? There wasn't there. Okay, so a couple hundred years ago, there was a division between the courts in the 
in Great Britain mm. at the time uh, for situations like this to correct the mistakes that they believed that the court had engaged in because it was too black and white. It was too black letter law. So they came up with this equity approach, this equitable approach to right the wrongs of the court. They had these big fights, these two separate pillars hated each other. And over the course of a couple of hundred years, they decided at some stage to amalgamate the rules. And now we have equitable doctrines planted throughout our common law system. So I could be wrong about this, but I seem to remember that the very ancient origins of equity was you went to the court to have your dispute resolved through the application of the common law. If the result was sort of oppressive or wrong or offensive to fairness, then you could go to the monarch, I think, oh, like some he, special he, court the that decide. the royals had, and that it was that court that could originally sort of issue the remedy that became known as equity. That might be true. Is that is that right, Manny? Do you know that history? So, after the Norman conquest of England, there was basically three ways that the king... Um, administered his justice. There was the King's Bench, there was the Court of Common Pleas, and there was the Exchequer. Um, basically, the <clears throat> they all had to go by way of writs, right? And this all sort of became super complicated, um, where you had to kind of write down things. If you got something written wrong, um, things got really complicated. And you had to go to the chancery you'd have to go to the chancery which was the basically the office of the lord chancellor and you would have to go and buy your writs off him uh to get your to get your um get your legislation commenced or to take steps in your legis legislation so anyway because of all this complicated stuff and i'm not going to go through all the detail people started petitioning the king basically saying help mm. um you know yeah. Our litigation's gone to the shit. Sorry, I've sworn. I've gone so far without swearing this year. Anyway, um, and basically that was that was delegated. The King's Council did it. They became overworked. They delegated it. Delegated to the Chancellor, who was literally the keeper of the King's conscience. Um, and the Chancery by the 14th century was operating as a court. Mm. Um, and basically you got two courts, one of which could get you out of the other one and there were fights between them and so on. But effectively, we ended up with two systems of law, one equity, one common law, and they are now fused for the most part or not, yeah, depending the, on who you talk Right. And, and, and as a result, here we are, however many hundreds of years later, and sprinkles of equity will just appear in cases like the one that we're talking about right now. Hmm. And the, court, the yeah, Supreme I mean, Court is still technically... Or has divisions, right? And one of the divisions it, yeah, is equity. That's right. Which I think just sort of means that it deals with big commercial transactions and commercial transactions that might more commonly require sort of equitable remedies. But there's no significance to that in terms of what powers particular judges have or anything like that. No, well, no, not in the Supreme Court because they're all they all have the powers of both equity and common law. Mm. But it is a problem, say in district court so for example if i was in the supreme court in a criminal matter and it emerged that somebody had um improperly got my client's dna i might on the spot say to the judge i want an injunction stopping that person mm. from analyzing that dna material an injunction is an equitable remedy and a supreme court judge can do it but a district court judge doesn't mm. have that happen yeah right so it is a whole bunch of extra remedies that are not available unless you have the equitable jurisdiction, mm. which local justices do. Mm. Anyway, I feel like we've botched that very badly, but... No, I reckon we got to the guts of that. I'm a common lawyer. Yeah. Well, I remember when I did equity and I said, hey, do you guys ever use equity? And you all collectively said to me, nah. Mm. So there you go. <laughs> we're mere criminal lawyers. Mm. No, we're public lawyers, sorry. Mm. I'm just bringing mm. up my notes now. The maxims of equity. Are we going to go through this? I don't think so. No. <laughs> okay. We'll be Ravi back. just said no, I think. <laughs> Thanks, Ravi. For... Clean hands, latches. What oh, else you got? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. All that stuff. 
Hey, yeah, I think, anyway. isn't like trustee and estate law part of equity? Trust, yeah. law of trusts, mm. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, my God, I'm falling asleep already. So what else is equity? Unjust enrichment's equity, isn't it? Yep. Unconscionability, unjust, specific performance is equity. Oh, okay. All right. So, so equity is littered in contract law then? Yeah. Well, I think that was one of the kind of classic areas, right, where black and white application led to injustice. I think specific performance is one of those. What about sort of yeah. various forms of estoppel? I think they're equitable, aren't they? Or some estoppel, estoppel is equitable. Yeah. I'm drawing on my law school. Yeah, here. because that's all. Sorry, Manny, say that again. Oh, no, I'm just thinking of the case, the Walton Scores case on estoppel. Yeah, yeah, back that's from, right. Yeah, yeah, Walden. Um, promissory estoppel. Promissory estoppel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that? Yeah. That's where you've made a promise. So you're stopped from what some sort of conduct inconsistent with that? Mm. Yeah, someone relies on that promise. Maybe I shouldn't have become a criminal lawyer. It's all quite interesting, isn't it? This is becoming mm. the we to do equity, which is let's all just pivot our practices. Mm. Is promissory estoppel akin to say some of the doctrine on stays of criminal proceedings relating to legitimate expectation? Legitimate expectation. You know how, say, the prosecutor has done something, you've relied upon mm. it, or you're entitled to <clears throat> expect that they're not going to prosecute you again, for example. Mm. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> reliance to your detriment comes in in some of the equitable principles, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, that's right. So big shout out to all the equity barristers that are listening to this, thinking what idiots what we are. What the hell are these guys <laughs> talking about? I can't. You know, I tell you what. Big shout out to all the equity lecturers out there. This stuff does not last in the brain. <laughs> Gone straight away. <laughs> Welcome back to the Wigs. It's been a crazy year, a great year. It's good to get another year under our belt. And now we're going to talk about the year in review. Some of the things that we've spoken about on the on the show that have come full circle in a legal context. Who's going to take it away first? What have we discussed that how it now has some sort of a resolution? So I'm happy to start if you want. So our first episode from the last 12 months was the one on uh, the 10th of February. We talked about Novak Djokovic and Minister for Home Affairs. The yeah. case about the tennis player. I suppose the development there is that I read recently in the news that he's going to be allowed back in Australia to play at the Australian Open. I heard that next year. Mm. Yeah, so that's interesting. So that controversy controversy is gone. And they had to make a. I think the minister had to make a particular order because I think a consequence of the exercise of the power against him earlier this year was that he was prohibited from seeking a visa for a fixed period. For it might have been years. three years. Yeah, mm. so they've made special power dispensing with that. Mm. So then in our next episode, which was released on the 15th of March, we looked at the case of Mr. Humsey, who had a win in the Court of Appeal. Don't know of any developments on that. He represented himself. Represented himself, Mm. yeah. Then we looked at the question of a recent decision of the High Court about when is a worker an employee. Oh, yeah. Not aware of any particular developments like that. But then we looked at the cartel conduct provisions. And, Manny, you were saying, I think, that the first jail sentence has been imposed by the federal court for cartel conduct. I think they got. I think they got suspended sentences from memory, but I guess prison sentence between nine months and two and a half years. Um, but they were suspended under whatever that provision is. Mm. Um, this is in the Vena Money case. Um, so that was a case involving um, cartel conduct, arranging, uh, basically arranging fixed exchange rates and fees for sort of cash exchange for people who are going overseas and that kind of thing. Um, so there was a fine of about a million bucks imposed on Vena Money, which was the company, and prison sentences of up to two and a half, half years for the representatives. But I think from memory, I know this article is saying otherwise, but I think from memory those um, prison sentences were suspended. Mm. Um, Interesting. Uh, so then we had Sorry, Before mate, we go on. on from that, there'll be a couple more. There's there's a cartel matter that I was involved in that judgment is, should be due. Uh, I don't know when judgment will be coming out in that, but there's also 
um, another one from down in Melbourne. Um, so there's a few pleas of guilty that have been entered to cartel matters, and there's a push on, I think, to broaden the federal court jurisdiction for criminal matters. So that'll be interesting. Mm, um, interesting. Mm. So then in season yeah. four, episode one, that was our Wigs live policing the prosecutor, prosecutorial ethics or criminal lawyers at Mark Dennis's reasonable cause conference. I saw Mark Dennis last week somewhere. Where was that? Oh, that was the ALS, ALS 50th, 50th anniversary dinner. Yeah. Birthday party. So reasonable cause still going strong? Next year? Yeah. It's on election day. Oh, we can't do it next year because it's election day. That's right. Yeah. But we live show next cause. year. We will do a live show next yeah. year. Just got to find a venue that'll fit you all in. Mm. There's a lot of you out there. Then season four, episode two, that was the Wigs featuring Professor Jeremy Gans. So Jeremy continues to be huge on Twitter. We talked about the High Court, remember? That was just before the appointment. Yes, that's right, we did. And what predictions was made about the appoint- about the next appointment? That's how good it was. Uh, I think there wasn't I so much a prediction but- as to say that whatever the political party of the day was didn't necessarily transfer into the way that the oh, judges yeah, the who were appointed mm. made their decisions yeah. in the sense that you don't – they didn't necessarily no conform to what you would expect. Mm. So who was appointed government. as a new judge? Jane Jago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah Jane we, did predict, we did predict it would be a federal court judge, mm. um, and it was. Um, I predicted that there would be, again, a failure to appoint someone diverse, and, again, that's happened. Um, yeah. And the High Court's now majority of women. That's right. But um, remains sort of desperately lacking any other kind of diversity. Mm. Um, There is, I think, one more appointment left, and then there won't be an appointment if everyone stays on for like 10 years or something. Yeah, they're all young, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, Kiefer goes, the Chief Justice. Yeah. So she'll be replaced. And then no appointments for ages. And Edelman will be on there for 30 years or something, won't he? Yeah. Mm. Which is a good thing. So then in season four, episode three, that was our episode on overturning constitutionally protected access to abortion in the United States. I guess the development there is that as part of the midterm elections, there was referendums on the ballot paper in various states to Mm. entrench the protections that Roe and Wade had given in various state laws. Mm. And I think they were all passed, weren't they, from what I've read? I think generally speaking, when whatever state um, was concerned, when abortion rights were directly on the ballot as the question, the population were generally in favour of protecting abortion rights. Mm. Yeah, which goes to show if you've got a generation of people growing up under a constitutionally protected law... Just you can't roll that back. And they succeeded also, I can't name the states off the top of my head, but <clears throat> in various quite conservative states. Sure. Yeah, those things well, they were grew passed. Up under it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's a yeah. bit of a backfire. The Republicans kind of, you know, decades long holy war around abortion. They finally got what they wanted, but it kind of seems to have blown up in their face a bit. Mm, a bit like um, you know, to a lesser, less controversial extent, John Howard's Work choices, finally mm. got what you wanted. 19, you know, 2007, control of both chambers and it blows up in your face. Like the dog that catches a car wheel. Mm. Yeah, although the states' rights people um, would say that it's a victory for states' rights in the sense that there are states banning abortion and there are states that are not banning it. Um, mm. There's a few cases coming up uh, in the... Supreme Court of the US that are sort of again pushing this states' rights perspective and it'll be interesting to see um, it's kind of like in Australia where I think it was Boilermakers that changed the entire relationship between the states and the Commonwealth in favour of the Commonwealth in terms of if we're going to the High Court was said that in effect if we're going to construe the Constitution we're going to construe it from the position of benefit to the Commonwealth I'm, I'm Butchering that a bit, but that's yeah, the that's crux it. of it. Mm. Um, and I think in America now, the Supreme Court is kind of switching, and we're going to see a bunch of judgments that kind of say uh, we, we prefer the states' rights um, and the 
and the federal government be damned. So it'd be interesting to see what happens with that. Mm. So then in episode four, which dropped on August 15, we looked firstly at the new provision of the New South Wales Bail Act, which was the new section 22A, which provides that a person must be remanded in custody upon a finding of guilt if the court satisfied that they will be imprisoned. Hmm. I was involved in another case in the Supreme Court after that episode where I re-ran that same complicated argument about transitional provisions and whether it applied to pending cases in front of the same judge and lost it. Hmm. We should revisit that sometime, say, in six or nine months and have a look at the statistics in terms of bail refusals. Mm, Yeah, we should. That'd be interesting. Then we looked at the High Court of Australia reaffirming the separation of powers. Now, I think that might have been Alexander, was it? The case of Alexander that I was involved in? Mm. Yeah. And I just actually did an an interview with Benchmark TV about that. But an update on Alexander, because people will remember he was the client of mine that was in in a detention centre in Syria and had his citizenship stripped under Section 36B of the Citizenship Act, but the High Court struck that down. He hasn't been found he's still sort of somewhere in the syrian national security apparatus if he's alive which Mm. is really unclear Mm. the australian government has made some representations to our diplomatic agent in syria because we don't have an embassy or relations even i think but effectively nothing's happened on that Mm. his family don't know if he's alive or dead Mm. then we in episode four also looked at uh the case um of DPP and Peckham, which was a Dubbo decision in the local court that was appealed to the Supreme Court by the prosecution. And uh, people will remember that we reenacted the transcript of it on the weeks. Then we had season four, episode five, Morrison's Multiple Ministries. Been any developments on that? Good. There was going to be an inquiry, wasn't I there? I think he lost all of it. Yeah, is that supported? No. Yeah, who was it that was appointed to do it? It was Virginia Bell, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, let's... Let's, let's get her let's on the line. Google. Let's get her on the line. Let's see what There is an update on this. In 2020 and 2021, listeners will remember Scott Morrison secretly appointed himself to administer the health, finance, treasury, home affairs and industry, science, energy and resource ministries. The report from Virginia Bell, former High Court Justice, is out Uh, She said that the former Prime Minister's actions undermined public trust and were ultimately unnecessary. She said Mr Morrison could have been authorised to act for any of the other ministers in a matter of minutes if he needed to. She also said the lack of disclosure of the appointments to the public was apt to undermine public confidence in government. And once the appointments became known, the secrecy with which they had been surrounded was corrosive of trust in government. She made a number of recommendations to improve the system for notifying the public about the appointment of ministers to an office. We discussed in the episode a simple solution to the issue that the law should require publication in the Commonwealth Gazette or in a notifiable instrument registered on the Federal Register of Legislation when there has been a ministerial appointment and that was exactly the key recommendation made by Justice Bell. She made a number of other recommendations about publication on government websites and so on. So that's yeah. what's happened with that. Um, cool. It's been moving. jam-packed year, far out. So after Morrison's multiple ministries in episode five, we did, can a guilty plea and conviction be set aside by an appeal court? Now, that was the discussion about a recent case, wasn't it, Felicity? Did you lead that discussion or was that you, Manny? It's uh, a good question. That was the one where the CC, where the lawyer turned up without instructions. And entered pleas of guilty. Remember that? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any developments on that. No, but there's been a recent case, which we won't name because I think it's scheduled for trial, um, in which the Court of Criminal Appeal overturned a plea of guilty entered at arraignment in quite interesting circumstances where the uh, accused had effectively stood up without telling his lawyers uh, at arraignment and pleaded guilty when everyone was expecting not guilty. Yeah, I've read that judgment. I'll tell you what's interesting about that judgment, and it's a published judgment, it's online, and a nexture to the decision of the Court of Criminal Appeal is the file note of the conversation in the cells 
immediately after he <laughs> enters the plea of guilty without his lawyers knowing he was going to do it. We should do a reenactment of that. Yeah, so it's Belinda Rigg, who is a silk, who uh, was the counsel, and then the solicitor, whose name escapes me. But basically, it's a quite a good file note. It's virtually a transcript of their conversation where the lawyers say, what happened there? And he basically... He never admits guilt, which is a sort of key issue that the appeal turns on. And mm. he put forward various reasons to them as to why he pled guilty and got sort of various advice. But obviously, they waive privilege mm. for the purpose of making that argument. Yeah, it's an interesting read. Yeah. Wow. Then we, <clears throat> in our last episode, looked at the issue of the voice. That's obviously quite recent. Nothing really changed there. The campaign's kind of heating up a little bit, I think. I'm hearing next year. For the date? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the Honourable Linda Burney was in uh, public discussions uh, in a speech to various unions, possibly giving an indication that we might be looking at something at the end of next year. Mm. Mm. So that was that. And then we talked about the NAC, National Anti-Corruption Commission. I'm surprised they didn't go with the Federal Anti-Corruption Commission. I was thinking about that today. The, the FAC. FAC. The FAC. Yeah. <laughs> the FNAC. The f***ing NAC. Well, I just well, like, you, you're, you're going to get fact. <laughs> yeah. like, if you're, you're naughty, you're going to get fact. Mate, you're corrupt, you get fact, and, and you from there, come back. that's it. And I just would have thought... It was there for the taking. Yeah, acronyms are important. Come on, Albo. Uh. This is really what we wanted. The Whigs that really want to use any pull we might have on the PM staff to change the name. Uh, yeah. Change the name. How, what, yeah. What a, One, the only thing we'll ever ask. It's a scarlet letter. You've been fact. The federal, oppos- the, the federal minister was fact today in an appearance in the Federal Anti-Corruption Commission. It's quite, you know what I mean? You don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's my contribution yes. to that one. Should have brought that up last episode. Uh, then we looked at the then recent High Court decision of SDCV and Director General of Security. Nothing new to report on that as far as I, I don't even remember it. Well, that was mm. a good one. So that that's one. a bit of a summary of what we did this year, guys. I think we did pretty well. Can I just take us back to way back to season two, episode 11, where we talked about the coercive control bill? Oh, yeah. Developments there. There is. A That's outside of the last 12 months, Felicity. <laughs> but it's a genuine wave, update wave because the right on rule. the 16th of November, okay. the New South Wales passed the act that now makes coercive control a criminal offence. Has that been enacted? Seven or years. Commenced? It's going to commence in 2024 to give a lead time for training of police and frontline services, etc., and community. Education, but basically, there's now a new criminal offence of uh, abusive behaviour by way of a course of conduct. It's a very long um, offence provision to sort of unpick what type of conduct might be caught, but the basic elements of the offence are where an adult engages in a course of conduct against another person that consists of abusive behaviour, they are or were intimate partners, the accused intends the course of conduct to coerce or control the other person and a reasonable <coughs> person would consider the course of conduct uh, would be likely in all the circumstances to cause any or all of the following, whether or not the fear or impact is in fact caused, fear that violence will be used against the other person or another person, or serious adverse impact on the capacity of the other person to engage in some or all of the person's ordinary day-to-day activities. Mm, interesting. It's interesting they delay the commencement of that for so long, but they only delayed the commencement of the active consent laws for what sort of six months Mm. when one i would have thought i.e the active consent laws is a much more radical rewriting of norms of behavior and difficult to achieve Mm. community knowledge Mm. and understanding Mm. because it's so nuanced i would have thought that kind of thing would warrant like a five-year lead-in to avoid miscarriages of justice and the like Mm. 
So almost my the whole is, kind of high school curriculum period. Yeah, yeah cohort. Yeah. 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 So my my contribution to um, the consultation concerning the choice of control legislation that's come through was pushing for the matter to be a table one matter rather than a table two matter. And what that means in short is that uh, you can, a, a matter that is, matters can be strictly indictable, so they are always prosecuted on indictment in front of a jury. Matters can be table two, which means that the prosecutor can elect mm to have the matter prosecuted in front of a jury, or Table 1 means that either the prosecutor or the defendant can elect to have a jury trial. Um, these amendments are in that category, that is, either the prosecutor or the defendant can elect. And the reason I thought that was important and I think is important is that it really means that if the police start overcharging coercive control, that is, in situations where there's been a single act of domestic violence uh, and they throw on a coercive control because why not, you know, mm. uh, why not add that in and then we can cut a deal or why not add that in and um, see if we can get our hand up on that. Um, what we now know is that it's open to defendants to uh, elect, take advantage of the AGP scheme and have a jury trial on it. Mm. And I hope that'll lead to some curbing of the overcharging of these offences, although I have some doubt about that. Good we'll one. see. Yeah. Um, the, the only other thing I wanted to raise from the previous season is that we had spoken, I think, the last episode of last season of last year about Julian Assange um, and his plight, and he's still in prison. Yet another year has gone by. How long has um, he been in prison for? I mean, I don't oh, even know. Years. Ten years now? Yeah, more? including all that. He had that period on bail, then he jumped, then he was in the in the embassy. Yeah, but how long since the exit of the embassy? Uh, Has that been two years? Let's check, Julian. So, oh, yeah, it's definitely been two years, isn't it? Surely. Because yeah. he, he got ejected, he got one year straight away. So He was locked up. He was first locked up in December 2010, right? Mm -hmm. That was when he was first locked up, and he's basically been either in the embassy or locked up since then, mm. um, he arrested was on 11 April 2019. Oh my god, wow, yeah, when his right. asylum was withdrawn, yeah, that's that long ago, yeah, and didn't get bail, obviously, having previously jumped bail, well, not obviously, yeah, he didn't get bail. But there has been some developments, which is that he was refused leave to appeal to the Supreme Court against the decision of the appellate court who set aside the decision of the magistrate who said that he shouldn't be sent back. So that aspect mm. of it is resolved. Mm. Then, as happens with, with extradition, once the judicial process was concluded, it went to the executive. Isn't it just in the on the minister's desk? Though? Now it's on the minister's desk, but she's made a decision to send him to America, and I think he's appealing that decision now. Which minister? Uh, Pretty Patel, I think the name is. Oh, okay. And that. there may or may not be some silent diplomacy going on on behalf of the Australian government. Yeah. There's a lot of international activism, obviously, in different Latin American governments and other places advocating for him. And, yeah, Albo, I think the current government sort of indicated some level of quiet diplomacy, right? Because there was a situation where um, one of the Myanmar advisors was released last week mm. or at the start of this week mm. uh, after spending two years in a Burma, Burma jail mm. for helping Aung San Suu Kyi mm. before the overthrow of her uh, tenure. Yeah. So we didn't know that was happening. So who knows? Who knows? Well, you'd have, He's you done 10 years. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, unless they're... I understand that sometimes it's important to do diplomacy quietly. I don't know that this is one of those matters. I think it's just really, he's done 10 years. No matter what he did, hasn't he done enough? It's and been that enough? going on for too long, yeah. Mm. Yeah, you know. And the, anyway. the medical evidence seems to be quite overwhelming in terms of the impact of being in detention upon him, in terms of, you know, the onerousness of being in detention. 
We we yeah. had when we had Jeffrey Robinson on talking about um, the Armenian situation. There's someone from his chambers representing Jennifer Robinson. Yeah. yeah. Who's now based back in Australia, I saw somewhere. We should get her on the show. <clears throat> we should get her on the show. She's awesome. Let's talk about this, Jennifer. Mm. Uh, yeah, no let's doubt do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we oh. can get her on. Yeah. All right, let's do it. Let's make it a 2023 mission. Mm. Is that everything? That's that's the yeah. interview. All right, let's, we'll be back after this break. Welcome back to the Wigs, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to wrap up the show, the last of 2022. Great year. Good year? I don't, yeah, good year. Great year for Great me. year for you. I got married. Got married. So the, the, the double whammy, what's the trifecta? Mm. Just happiness, bliss. Yeah. Two, one plus one Marital equals bliss. Marital and there parental bliss. Love it. It's good. Manny, you there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what's, your, uh, what's your happiness in review? I want to just do fun things because I've got a fun thing to talk about. Oh, talk about your fun thing. Fun yeah, thing yeah. slash year in review slash fun thing. Yeah. Go. So it's, as everyone probably knows, it's the 50th anniversary of the election of the Whitlam government. Everyone, know, you knew that, many obviously. And sorry, this is not yeah, going to be... Yeah, tattooed on my forehead. Yeah, this I thought is, so. Yeah. <laughs> not going to be some sort of Labor Party advertisement. No. <clears throat> I went to uh, the Whitlam oration, I think last weekend or the weekend before that Penny Wong gave. Oh, I know what your fun thing is. Yeah. And um, so the Whitlam oration was given by Senator Penny Wong. That was really interesting. She talked about this history of Australian foreign policy and talked about like the different labour traditions. So the Everett one uh, was multilateralism, sort of he helped form the UN. Then the Whitlam one, I think, was regionalism. And then the third one was some other aspect of foreign policy and she was sort of trying to blend it all. So that was interesting. But my fun thing was I got to have dinner with someone who's a bit of a hero of mine, Mary Gordron. Mm. Probably quite indiscreet to sort of talk about this on the podcast. But oh, do that now. Because it was just a personal sort of function. But it was just so cool to meet her. She's so awesome, so interesting. And, yeah, just wanted to say it. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I sort of would like to invite her on the wigs, but she's sort of not like, a very public person, I don't think, mm. and yeah. not sort of someone that like enjoys the limelight or wants to. Sort she of listens to the wigs, though, right? You, you talk to her about not, the show. Not to my knowledge, no. She's married to John Fogerty. Yeah, who's John Fogerty? He's the lead singer of Creedence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> well, I think they just share the same name. <laughs> <laughs> She's super cool. She could be married to someone like that. I'm yeah. sure the real, the other John Fogerty's cool too. Yeah, come he's on, a, on the Green uh, River. Yeah, we can probably edit out some of this. But is it indiscreet <laughs> to talk about a personal function like that? I think it's okay yeah. to mention it. What do you think? Uh, you didn't disclose Emmanuel? what you said. I think what you said was fine. Yeah. Uh, Emmanuel, what's your fun thing? Uh, I am about to go effectively on two and a half months of leave. <sighs> okay. Which so I'm really quite excited about. Listeners, beware of that. You won't hear from us for two and a half months. Are you going somewhere, Matt? Uh, uh, well, we can record in early January where I'll be back for two weeks, but I will be alternatively in Perth and in London and in Europe oh, wow. uh, during that time. So, wow. yeah, cool. and it's Amazing. like a sort of really decent break, trying not to do much work and just kind of have a sort of mi- almost mini sabbatical. Mm. Uh, mm. Plan. You That's need that with our job, I reckon. Mm. Yeah. I remember some advice I got when I first started at the bar from someone else who was many years senior and seemed to be successful and happy at the bar. Was that Richard Royal, by any chance? Yeah, he gave me the same advice. He said, take 10 weeks holiday every year. I've done it since since I've been at the bar. Uh. Minimum 10 weeks every year. Yeah. Mm. He takes two, four months off and then Christmas and that, right? Something like that. Uh, and just, you know, for podcast hosts as well, just 10 weeks. Just just let those bills pile up. Mm. Just just don't even engage. Mm. Switch off. Mm. I think the reality is that when you're it? on the bar, you're so intensely on. Mm. Yeah. But I when mean, you're I here would... at the show, are you guys intensely off? Is that what you're saying? This is fun. This is fun. This things. is fun. 
Yeah. The it's wigs is really our fun thing. thing. Oh, okay. There mm. you go. Bang. The collective We've mind. tied it together. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. Well, that's it. That's the year done. I guess we'll be back, what, February, January? What about mm. your fun thing, Jim? I don't Jim, know. what's your fun thing? I don't have any fun things. Come on, mate. None. You can do better than that. It's almost summer. You've, You've got, got a new job. Thing. Yeah, I'm an industrial officer now. Mm. So I'm going to be spending some time at the Industrial Relations Commission. So you'll be on your feet doing cool. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, supposedly. Oh, that's awesome. excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, that's so great. Happen. Hasn't happened Congratulations, yet. Congratulations, Thank mate. you. That's Thank great. You. So that's going to happen. So We could of, assist you with some... Some advocacy training. I might. I dare say we'll need it. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. Talk about deep end. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Lots of off air discussions. I'll I'll need to have with all three of you. Um, so that's cool. Yeah. That getting ready for twenty twenty three. We've got our bub on the way. Yeah. Ravi's little mate is on the way. So getting ready for that. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what twenty twenty three brings. But yeah, other than that, six subjects left. Almost there, mate. Mate, that's actually, awesome. next this time next year. I'll be a law graduate. Oh, yeah, you will. Amazing. Start of the weeks is that going into it, and then, you know, next year's time next year, done. We should mm. turn that into a thing. And then straight what to the bar. Thing? Like a celebratory show. Straight, straight to, the to the equity bar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that'd be right. Straight to the equity bar. <laughs> straight to lose cases for people. Um, but, yeah, we should turn that into, you know, knucklehead start a show, finally finishes, you know, big celebration wig show thing. Mm. Do you mean a separate segment? Yeah, well, like, or, or a dedicated episode where, as I've graduated, you guys put me we to the test. We just quiz you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could just take okay. him through the Priestly 12 or whatever it is. Yeah. The Priestly yeah. 11. Priestly 11, yeah. yeah. Failed already, Mr. <laughs> we, could, we, we, could apply, we could apply to the Chief Justice to record your swearing in ceremony. Oh, yeah. They, bro- they broadcast it on YouTube. They do all the ceremonies yeah. on YouTube. yeah. You can get it. Well, we could ask them for permission to, to use it. To well, you've got to get permission to see if all three of you can move me. Simultaneously. Oh. Well, at the same time. Yeah, the wigs. Yeah, yeah, we the wigs, Rick. <laughs> move that. And I'm coming anyway. I mean, I mean, we'll all be there. Doesn't yeah, matter good. Yeah, I'm yeah, holding yeah, you to that, yeah. but that won't be yeah. for a while. Next year's going to be big. Uh, Next well, it year is, is it going is. to be big. It is. It'll be it huge. is. All right, well, let's wrap it up. Let's give our listeners a chance to uh, unwind. Thank you very much, Emmanuel Kukasherian on remote. Uh, Stephen Lawrence, Felicity Grahams. Pleasure doing business with you all once more. Look forward to doing it again with you all in 2023. That's the wigs out. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Thanks for listening. Please like the wigs on Facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim mintz